The Australia Together podcast is brought to you by Australian Community Futures Planning. We're helping Australians work together to plan a better future for their nation. Visit us at www.austcfp.com.au. Hi, my name's Bronwyn Kelly. I'm the founder of Australian Community Futures Planning, or ACFP, and this is the Australia Together podcast. Today, we're providing the last of four podcast episodes in our series on saving Australian democracy and sovereignty by building a new constitution. The series contains a reading of a four-part essay in which I discuss how Australians are being dragged into a full ceding of their sovereignty over our country and how, if we do nothing to reverse this, we will end up losing our democracy itself. To help prevent this loss, I suggest that Australia needs a new type of constitution in which the people of Australia will have a reasonable and rightful share of power and I tackle some questions that, if we answer them well, should offer us a way to build this new constitution together. In episodes 40 and 41, in which I read parts 1 and 2 of this essay, I set out why Australians need to build this new type of constitution and I discussed what needs to be fixed in our democracy if we are to be able to establish it as a form of state and governance that fosters political equality for the electors. I said that this will require us to build a political system where we are enabled as a collective to function cohesively but without the need to wash away our diversity. I then introduced the concept of the need for Australians to develop what I call non-exclusive terms of trust that they can issue to those they elect to federal parliament. I went on in episode 42 to read part three of the essay, which discusses how we can begin to build these terms of trust by collaboration. In this final part four of the essay, I'll expand on that, providing insights into how these terms of trust may be properly structured so that they are indeed non-exclusive and will therefore enable us to act efficiently as a collective to design and further the national project that we really want, again, without washing away our diversity. I'll also set out how development of these terms can lay the foundation for a transition away from our current colonial form of state and towards a full democracy capable of supporting a peaceful coexistence of cultures, sovereignties and self-determining political equals. Finally, I'll tie this back to the original question of the essay, which was, how can Australians take back control over the choice of who governs us? And I'll show how, if we learn to develop these terms of trust by collaboration, we can enable Australians to regain control as political equals in our own democracy, and at the same time, release our political system and leaders from hostage to external powers. Here's part four of the essay. How can Australians achieve a peaceful coexistence of sovereignties and self-determining political equals? Short answer, by establishing terms of trust with the parliaments they elect. Part 4a, reprising the urgent questions for Australia's democracy and sovereignty. Throughout this essay, I have asserted that 
Australians have lost control over the one power they had in their polity, the power to say who shall govern them, and that, as a result, the most urgent questions of our times, at least as far as our democracy and sovereignty are concerned, are how do we wrest back control over the choice of who governs us, and how do we establish some control over what they may rightly do with power? I am sure there will be many politicians, particularly from the two major parties, who will reject my assertion that the people of Australia have lost control over the choice of who governs us. And if there are any who do accept that this is true, they might seek to argue that the loss has arisen from electoral distortion, such as poor regulation of political donations or of political advertising, rather than from any interference by external state and corporate powers, which may have been enabled by the fears of the major parties, that they will be deposed from office if they do not subordinate the national interest, particularly on defence and foreign affairs, to the interests of the US or corporations. Suffice to say, our loss of control over the choice of who governs us in elections is caused by all these things, but most notably now by the belief of the major parties, a belief which was clearly on display by Labour at the 2023 ALP conference, that unless they demonstrate a solid uniformity on defence and foreign policy that is acceptable to the US, they will be unable to confine our choice of who governs us to the bipartisan form of governance that has comfortably accommodated them as the dominant parties in our politics since World War II. In short... They believe that unless they uniformly subordinate Australia's national interest to the interests of certain foreign political and corporate powers, they will not be able to keep out newcomers to the Parliament. Leaving that argument aside, though, I am also sure there will be many Australians, and politicians for that matter, who will take issue with my sense of the urgency of the two questions I've posed, relative to concerns that may be more immediate for them, such as rises in the cost of living and climate change. But to the extent that solutions to these problems will depend on how well we organise our polity and our democracy, the urgency of the questions I've asked should be evident. It is clear that the way we organise our current political systems is not working to help us resolve these vital issues. The reduced form of democracy we have been stumbling on with, one which relies simply on elections and voting every three or four years, is not helping with either our immediate or longer-term concerns about survival, especially insofar as we have lost much of the possibility of fairness in the elections themselves. Our problem in our democratic arrangements is not only that elections today prohibit us from independently exercising our votes as political equals, that is, without interference from external and state corporate powers, it is also that our singular dependence on elections, as though they equate to democracy, is confiding us to a depleted system of democracy, one which bases government solely on a now highly flawed and unfair system of selecting representatives without offering us a foundation for responsible government. In our elections, no one understands what we want governments to be responsible for. Governments might claim that elections give them mandates and require them to be accountable for those. But the truth is that in elections there is no specification by the electors of any mandate. 
Governments just fabricate them if they feel a need, although in recent times they don't even bother with that, lest they make a rod for their own backs. This is why, in part three of this essay, I suggested that the answer to the first question I pose will depend on how well we answer the second. The answer to resting back control over the choice of who governs us lies in first establishing terms of trust as to what we expect the parliaments and governments we elect to do, and do not do, with the power we give them. Candidates need to understand us on this before they can demonstrate their credentials for occupation of a seat in Parliament. In that sense, these terms of trust are rather like the selection criteria that any candidate for a job, in this case in political office, should be able to comprehensively and transparently address when they're applying for the job. They should be able to say how their political platforms will qualify them for that particular job because demonstrably their policies will enable them, firstly, to fully comply with their obligations to Australians, especially to uphold all their civil, political, economic, social and cultural rights. And secondly, their platforms should enable them to show how their policies will contribute to delivery of our preferred national project, a project that should be expressed by Australians in the form of a statement of our values and our preferred purpose and destination as a nation. In other words, before we go to elections, we should spell out a vision of the nation we want to become. A statement of their credentials and policy commitments in relation to these two things can offer us a transparent means by which political candidates can demonstrate their commitment to the public interest and electors can efficiently judge any candidate's or party's competency in relation to the job on offer. As such, it is only logical that we need to issue candidates for the National Parliament with a job description. And the selection criteria for that job, or as I call them, terms of trust, must be developed before we hold elections. Otherwise, we will have no yardstick by which to measure the willingness and capacity of each party or candidate to accept responsibility for the things we consider essential and they will have no way of demonstrating their commitment to us and our values, let alone to our preferred project for the nation's future. No one will have any understanding of either the purpose of the nation or the terms of trust on offer to those who might attain power. Creation of these terms of trust should enable us to send a fundamental message to those seeking power in our democracy, and that is that the whole point of electing people is to further that purpose, not their own. If they can't prove their commitment to our national purpose, then, quite simply, they cannot qualify to represent us. Many Australians will be sceptical that we might be able to agree on the national purpose, especially since we are such a diverse nation. But, as I suggested in Part 3 of this essay, there is one area of common agreement that we can build on to do this, and that is about what we want for the future. Within that singular area of common ground, we can begin to build a plan that describes our preferred purpose and destination as a nation, and we can also build an integrated map of the safest paths towards it. Then, alongside that, if we also properly scope terms of trust for those we elect, Candidates will at last have the guidance they need about both the purpose of the collective and the true nature of the public interest. This is why 
a new constitution must be designed to include a statement of both our values as a nation and the rights and obligations of all parties to the democracy, including the right to a voice in our own governance. Inclusion of all human rights is necessary in order that governments can observe their obligations to the multiplicity of interests of the members of the public. In fact, the human rights and obligations listed in the International Human Rights Treaties to which Australia is a party and which we should therefore have no difficulty in putting into Australian law come closer than any other statement in law to describing what the public interest actually is. This is because they are fundamental to the interests of any and all individuals who might seek to be members of a democratic state, since a state is not a democracy if its citizens have no rights. Trying to run a democratic government without enshrining human rights in law is the surest way to ensure that the public interest will never be protected. And if all the human rights in the international treaties and the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples are put into our constitution by our agreement as a free and equal people, they will provide something extra that is invaluable to our democracy, the valid basis on which other treaties may be justly made. Until all the human rights under these instruments are enshrined in the constitution by the free agreement of Australians, it will not be possible to demonstrate that any other treaty such as a treaty with First Nations, is being justly made and will not be contrary to or unfair to the interests of both Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. That said, while human rights in large part define the public interest, they do not suffice to define the whole of the national interest. That must be defined in much broader terms, and these can be supplied by including a statement of our values as a nation in the Constitution, as well as the extra right I have spoken of to give voice to the national purpose, our project for safe travel towards the preferred destination of the nation in the future. As I said in Part 3, there is a somewhat circuitous route between learning how to specify the purpose of the nation and being able to take back control over the choice of who governs us. But in my most recent book, The People's Constitution, The Path to Empowerment of Australians in a 21st Century Democracy, I suggested that an orderly path for development of these necessary terms of trust would best be followed by establishing a process for fully inclusive community engagement on a national scale. This should be designed to allow Australians to lead themselves without political interference in a nationwide collaboration for development of a new constitution, a people's constitution. This would be a constitution which, for the first time, would grant the people of Australia a rightful share of power in their own democracy, principally by enabling them to express the terms on which they are willing to give their consent to be governed. In the book, I said that this share of power for the people should be a rightful but not overweening share. In other words, the intent was not to replace our current system of monarchical power where overweening shares are held by executive governments with another system of power where an overweening share is held by the people. That would simply replace one type of tyranny with another. Instead, the intent is to distribute different types of power 
among all the players who should rightly hold each type. In this new arrangement of democracy, I proposed that the current powers of the Parliament to make laws and those of governments to develop and administer policy under the Constitution would be largely unaffected. But crucially, I suggested adding one new power into the mix. I suggested that Australians would be accorded a power that is not actually being exercised at the moment by anyone who is empowered under the current constitution. It's not being exercised by the parliament or the executive or the courts or the states or the territories. Nor does the constitution make space for any person or entity to exercise this power, which is to say that no one, not even the king, is legitimately authorised to exercise it at present. That power is the right to express the sovereign people's will. In suggesting that there is a need for this power to be specifically authorised and accorded fully to the people of Australia in their constitution, it should be evident that this will formally establish the people of Australia as sovereign. This has obvious implications for the model of sovereignty on which our current form of state is based, monarchical sovereignty, and I will continue to deal with this in other writing. But it is necessary to mention here that the question of who is sovereign, the king or the people, needs a formal resolution, hopefully in favour of the people, and most assuredly not in a framework that would destabilise our ability to peacefully and productively govern ourselves. In the People's Constitution, I have suggested that we can begin by conceptualising a constitution in which the people are formally accorded status as the source of the sovereign will. At present, our constitution accords this status to no one, and this is highly deleterious to our capacity to govern ourselves as a cohesive and prosperous nation and establish a form of state which rightly distributes the different types of powers necessary for a stable and productive democracy. The Constitution is in fact designed quite effectively to prevent us from expressing our will and in this it is preventing us from becoming the nation we want to be and the one we want to leave to future generations. It is also preventing us from establishing stable, peaceful governance, one where the rightful powers of the various parties to the democracy are properly separated and balanced so that no one party can abuse the privileges and rights of the others. This is something we need to establish as soon as we can because the potential under our current democratic arrangements for imbalances in power is now quite marked. As I've shown in other writing, Australia's political arrangements have given rise to a problem of executive overreach in the last 20 years, which has in turn led to a serious increase in abuse of human rights by Australian governments. Inasmuch as the Australian Constitution obviates the need for expression of the sovereign will, the peoples or otherwise, it creates the vacuum I spoke of in part one of this essay, a vacuum in which political parties are being forced to develop their policies. Some politicians probably prefer it that way, but if we want to make them more accountable to us and for what is truly in our interest, we must face up to the need and indeed the obligation to say what they are to be accountable for. The current constitution gives us neither the right nor the means to express this. 
in a space where we should be stating the purpose for which we wish to form and stay together as a commonwealth, there is a lacuna, a silence. Australians have to fill that gap with their voices, that is, with a specification of their will as free and equal people of a self-governing nation, if they expect to be able to issue coherent terms of trust to those they elect and thereby assume a modern polyphonic form of sovereignty, the form that is the minimum necessary in an irreversibly multicultural society for a peaceful, non-exclusive coexistence of cultures and self-determining individuals, as well as a peaceful coexistence of Indigenous and state sovereignties. This is what has led me to suggest that it is a necessity for everyday Australians to be able to assemble themselves so that they can develop terms of trust for issue to those they elect, terms that should amount to a coherent statement about the sovereign will of the people. And so I will now turn to the form this might take so that it is of practical use to everyone. Part 4b. The Structure and Content of Terms of Trust The terms of trust that Australians might issue to those they elect so that they can guide the elected as to the sovereign people's will require constitutional amendments which, when taken together, will form a cohesive statement with four main components. The statement will need to, one, affirm our most sincerely held values as an indissoluble commonwealth, the values that hold us together and define what we stand for, as a nation. Two, the statement will need to enshrine all our human rights as equals. Three, it should transparently set out the government's obligations to the people in observance of those rights. And four, it should provide a guarantee that any and all of us shall be able to have a voice in how the nation should chart a course to a better future. The fourth of these contemplates the need to build a constitution which gives all Australians a right and the means to participate in an efficient process for expression of what in the people's constitution I have called the national people's voice and that this will need to exist alongside an Indigenous voice, the reasons for which I will explain a little later. Putting the four things together will amount to the creation of a new preamble and extra chapter in the Constitution, a space for assigning a specific type of power to those who currently have none, the people. This will comprise a coherent statement that must be and can only be made by the people. It cannot be made by the Parliament or a monarch or a Governor-General or any of the other parties currently empowered by the Constitution, such as the courts. And as an expression of the sovereign will of the people, we can conceive of this statement as containing two types of affirmations. That is, we should learn through a collaborative process to structure it so that it contains, one, commitments to some constants. That is, vital principles and values that are central, or shall we say essential, to our will and that are likely to be fairly constant through time, and which, by the way, because they are vital, will need to be acknowledged as justiciable. And two, 
The statement will also need to be structured so that it contains an acknowledgement that our aspirations, things which are likely to change through time, are also central to the will of the people and should therefore be expressed and taken seriously enough to form the basis of the agendas of the parliaments we elect, at least as guidance, if not as binding justiciable requirements. In relation to the constants, the new constitution should contain commitments that the Australian people and those they elect are both willing to affirm as central to the sovereign will of the people because they're fundamental to our humanity. Our human rights and obligations to each other fall into that category if we accept that they are the natural birthright of all. And since we know that it is the Australian government's official policy that human rights are indeed the natural birthright of all. They are acknowledged in current policy to be universal, indivisible, inherent, enjoyed by all simply by reason of their humanity rather than granted or bestowed, and they are inalienable in the sense that they cannot be given up or taken away, then we should be able to expect that no elected member of parliament will have difficulty in joining with the Australian people in affirmation of those rights and obligations. In fact, unless they do so, they will be denying our very humanity. And therefore, the Constitution should enshrine our right to demand that affirmation as the bottom line of our consenting to be governed. It should clearly signal to candidates that if they're not prepared to swear to respect and uphold all our human rights, then they cannot pre-qualify for a seat in Parliament. Our values as members of the Australian nation also fall into this category of things that are likely to be fairly constant through time. For instance, based on research I've conducted in the People's Constitution, we may assume that peace is an enduring value for Australians, as is democracy. However, regardless of which values Australians finally settle on in this nationwide engagement process, they too should be affirmed by both electors and the elected, and oaths of office should be developed for the elected, which reflect sincere commitment to those values and a sworn willingness to be accountable for failing to uphold them. In relation to our aspirations, things which are likely to change through time, the important thing is to ensure that the Constitution enables us to express them and express them in a manner that enables parliaments and governments to scope policies and legislation that will maximise our chances of realising those aspirations and to ensure that parliamentarians cannot fail to understand these aspirations. The Constitution should enable Australians to express them in a particular form, the form of an integrated, non-exclusive, long-term strategic plan which will propel Australians towards realisation of their preferred vision for the future of their nation, but via routes they consider to be safe. In short, the Constitution should enshrine what I have called a process for expression of a national people's voice and a right for everyone to engage in that process, the process of building the national project one which foreshadows to governments the directions in which we want them to fly. As I have already indicated, this national people's voice, as both an institution independent of politics, as well as a process for building the plans for our preferred future, should be enshrined in the Constitution in addition to an Indigenous voice. 
Both these voices must be enshrined simultaneously, so that no one is either privileged or disadvantaged by their creation. This is necessary if we are to resolve any remaining argument between the 6.3 million Australians who voted for the Indigenous voice and the 9.5 million who voted against it. The two voices must also be established as independent, self-run institutions if parliaments are to have the best chance of comprehending the full character of the new post-colonial reconciled nation that would emerge under a people's constitution and the full significance of the people's expressed sovereign will. Both these voices should also be enshrined in a non-exclusive way, by which I mean they cannot cancel each other out, or shall I say, shut each other up. In other words, there can't be a hierarchy of one over the other if Australia is to establish a peaceful coexistence of sovereignties that fosters both the public interest, that is, the legitimate interests of the individual members of the democracy, and the national interest. Nor is there even a need for a hierarchy, since neither institution will be able to bind parliaments or the executive. Parliaments and governments will still be able to determine in their respective clearing houses which voice will prevail on an issue-by-issue basis if there is a conflict between the voices. They will still make the final decisions in law and or policy. But in a people's constitution, they will be required to demonstrate that their decisions meet the terms of trust they have accepted in swearing their oaths of office. They will be required to demonstrate how their decisions were consistent with their obligations to uphold the rights of the members and values of the nation. We may only imagine that this will make for a form of state that is more efficient and fairer than we have now. More detail on the necessary structure of the terms of trust which can propel Australians to this new, fairer form of state is supplied in the People's Constitution. All that said, it is one thing to imagine how terms of trust may be structured so that people may safely establish this new form of state, but it is another thing to design a collaborative process by which they may confirm the contents. Australians need to be given a proper space to do this, free of political interference. They also need to develop a program for it, because the order in which this collaborative process is run is extremely important. To explain that, I can cite the last two referendums in Australia as examples of how not to do constitutional reform. In those two cases, the Parliament opted for piecemeal amendments out of the context of the wider debate that should have been had about what we were actually trying to achieve for the nation and its future and what we need in rights. A more collaborative first principles approach that sincerely respects the will of Australians as sovereign in their own land is necessary, and I have made suggestions about how this may be organised in Chapter 9 of the People's Constitution. I have summarised that in an ACFP fact sheet called Making a New Australian Constitution by Collaboration. This outlines a seven-step and probably five-year-long program of nationwide community engagement and collaboration to build a constitution fit for a 21st century democracy of political equals. The fact sheet is accessible on the ACFP website at www 
www.austcfp.com.au forward slash supporting hyphen activities. Part 4C. Restoring control over the choice of who governs us. Throughout this essay, I have suggested that the priority questions for our democracy and sovereignty are how do we wrest back control over the choice of who governs us and how do we establish some control over what they may rightly do with power. I've also said that the answer to the first of these will depend on how well we answer the second. I've then gone on to suggest that the answer to the second question is that if we wish to establish control over what the parliaments and governments we elect may rightly do with power, we will need to develop terms of trust which set out the bottom line of our consenting to be governed. I've also suggested that these terms of trust are essential to our chances of achieving a peaceful coexistence of cultures, self-determining political equals and Indigenous and state sovereignties. In effect, development of these terms of trust is the first step in being able to switch from an exclusive, unitary, monarchical system of sovereignty to one where the people are sovereign because they have moved past colonialism and into a constitutional democracy. Instead of parliaments having to swear their allegiance, as they must do now, to a dead foreign monarch and her heirs and successors, the advent of terms of trust that have been collaboratively developed by the people will usher in a new form of relationship between the people and parliaments, one where the elected will be required to swear allegiance to the specified sovereign will of the Australian people. Along the way, the people themselves will need to become accustomed to the fact that a stable and accountable government cannot be formed unless they too have discharged their obligation to specify their will as sovereign. The people will need to shift to a position where they accept that it is unreasonable and in fact quite unfair to those they elect to expect them to be accountable for unspecified responsibilities. They will need to shift to a new mindset where everyone takes it for granted that elections should not be conducted until they have first specified the national purpose and project so that it can function as a good job description for the parliament and that conducting elections in the absence of that specification is not only inefficient for everyone, it is also a recipe for more disasters, including ones that we cannot afford like climate change. For those well used to assuming that politics, conducted as we do it now, is the only way to build a nation and secure its future, the notion that the sovereign will of the people of a multicultural nation can be specified in a coherent statement will be anathema. It will take a long time for politicians to get used to it. But it need not take a long time for Australians to get used to it especially insofar as the development of terms of trust is likely to significantly increase their confidence that we can more easily select governments that can pick up speed in resolving issues like climate change or fractious international relations. It will not be difficult for Australians to figure out that the sooner we tell governments what we want, the sooner they can move on from disputes about what is best for us and them, and construct an integrated set of policies best able to secure what is actually vital to all of us, like 
a livable planet, a decent and affordable standard of living, a good and affordable education, lifelong health, secure housing, and freedom from the ravages of war and social conflict. Once the concept of building terms of trust is more widely understood, many Australians will wonder why we didn't do it sooner. But what is the connection between doing this and taking back control of elections? If the answer to a question about securing greater control over what those we elect may rightly do with their powers is to develop the sort of terms of trust that I have described, how does that help us take back control over elections? Well, as I have said a few times in this essay, there is a somewhat circuitous route between learning how to specify the purpose of the nation and being able to take back control over the choice of who governs us. Learning how to specify the purpose of the nation in the form of these terms of trust will take time, of course. But as the collaborative process for building that specification is progressively mastered, it will provide the electors with something they currently don't have that will enable them to transfer their attention away from mainstream media and social media. They will have built their own alternative and credible source for the information they need to make their decisions as to who is best qualified to govern them. Moreover, this source will have a level of credibility that certainly cannot be claimed at present by either mainstream news media or social media. That level of credibility will arise from two points. One, the fact that the terms of trust have been developed by the people themselves. And two, the fact that the performance of existing parliaments in relation to those terms of trust will be directly accessible by us. By this I mean that a parliament's performance in relation to a. their adherence to our values, b. their record of meeting their obligations to protect our rights, and c. their progress towards or away from our preferred vision for our future, will henceforth be accessible by us based on factual evidence that itself can now be readily and transparently assembled in one easily accessible place, a place open to everyone for participation and viewing. Once we have the terms of trust, it is not a difficult matter at all to assemble the factual evidence about how well a parliament did in complying with those terms. Australian Community Futures Planning is currently pilot testing this system by running trials using a draft vision for a better Australia. This has been assembled by ACFP as a working draft based on research about the opinions that have actually been expressed by Australians on their preferred future in surveys, studies and other research and community engagement over the last 20 years. For purposes of these trials, ACFP has called this draft the Vision for Australia Together. To date, The trials have proven that it is quite easy to independently collate the evidence Australians need so that they can assess the performance of a parliament in relation to both what matters most to them personally and what matters most to us as a nation for our future. It is possible to efficiently assemble evidence-based reports that can be released before every federal election to all Australians so that they can make their own judgment about who is best qualified for a seat in Parliament without the distraction of information from mainstream and social media that is not based on factual evidence 
is bogus or is irrelevant to their real needs. It is also quite easy to produce a report which analyses the policy platforms on offer from the major parties and whether those policies will be capable of driving us towards or away from our preferred future. ACFP was able to independently mount a pilot version of all this for the 2022 federal election, producing two comprehensive reports for the purpose. The first report was The State of Australia 2022, which provided an evidence-based end-of-term report on the performance of the 46th Parliament in relation to the draft vision for Australia together. And the second was the election 2022 Australian Better Futures Commitment Index, which reported on the potential of the policy platforms of the three major parties, Labor, the Liberal National Coalition and the Greens, to propel us toward or away from the vision for Australia together. ACFP will run this program again for the 2025 federal election, resources permitting. Assessing the performance of an outgoing parliament in this way will give Australians a quick one-stop reference point before an election, helping them to decide how well that outgoing parliament worked together during its term to deliver on our vision for a better future, and whether they did so with integrity and fairness. This in itself will save time for the electors. No longer will it be necessary to wade through or recall all the strengths and blunders of parliaments and governments reported by news media during a period of office. Few people have the time and energy to do that anyway. Indeed, it's impossible when the information is spread over so many disparate and often unverified platforms. But once the information about what is truly relevant to their future well-being and security is assembled in one place, their ability to review that and determine how they'll vote will be made decidedly easier by these forms of evidence-based reporting about progress towards a vision that they themselves have assembled. They will be able to exercise their own judgment about a parliament based on consolidated evidence of the performance of that parliament over the full term of its office, and this time in relation to what really matters to them, their stated values, rights, and the vision for their future. This will itself gradually reduce the dependence of electors on the media, or maybe not so gradually, given that trust in the media is already at an all-time low in Australia, and people are actively looking for more reliable, independent sources of information. They are drifting away from mainstream and social media to non-mainstream sources, such as Substack and podcast platforms being hosted by independent experts in various fields. These two can, of course, fall into dispersing propaganda and misinformation, but to the extent that writers in these news spaces have now freed themselves from dependence on corporately controlled news media, they can build new audiences without having to subordinate their writing to the will of gatekeeper publishers such as Rupert Murdoch or Nine News, who have no professed loyalty to the interests of Australians. They can no longer be silenced by these gatekeepers and the commercial advertisers that fund them. Now they can concentrate on facts and evidence. The new platforms 
are releasing journalists and experts from their dependence on commercial news media. And this competition offers a chance to begin reinstalling truth in our polity. It may take a while, but if we master a process of setting out what is truly vital for us, then we will have a frame of reference which filters what is really relevant to us and what is not, and therefore what is worth attending to in our busy lives. In short, because terms of trust can crystallise what really matters for us, they can make our individual deliberations about how we might vote so much more efficient and sensible. And they can make our conversations with whoever we elect so much more informative for them in terms of policy development. Not unreasonably, we might expect that this will mean the major parties will gradually shift their policy platforms so that they demonstrate a truer allegiance to our preferred national agenda, rather than the agenda of a foreign power. Logic suggests that if all they have to do to pre-qualify for a seat in Parliament is develop policies which respect our values, rights and will about where we want to go as a nation, this should release them from their fears that they will be deposed if they don't support the interests of an external power. We might wait a while for the major parties to develop the courage to stand up to foreign interference. But if their choice is between A, being ejected from Parliament by Australians because they refuse to commit to the terms of trust we can organise ourselves to specify, or B, being ejected from Parliament by external and imperial corporate powers because they refuse to submit to foreign agendas, then we might expect they will develop the courage to stand up to that external interference sometime before one or the other of them, most likely Labour, is made extinct by further dips in their primary vote. This is logic that is only based on abstraction, of course, but it is well worth consideration by any political party facing extinction. As I said in part three of this essay, Australia's two major political parties are witnessing steep declines in their primary vote. They're mindful of the possibility that they're on the brink of extinction. I also said that this has led the major parties to switch their allegiance away from Australians and to foreign powers, and they will need strong incentives to switch their allegiance back again. These incentives will need to give them a safe corridor to survival. In that regard non-exclusive terms of trust, which have been collaboratively and thoughtfully developed by Australians, consistent with their stated values as a nation, offer the best chance to swing the two major parties back to us, because they take away the risk that a policy choice a party might make to stand up for the expressed interests of Australians over the interests of external powers will result in their being deposed by external powers. The trick here will be to offer incentives that make these parties feel safe enough to do the right thing once again by Australians and very unsafe to do the wrong thing. They will need to feel that it is safe enough to stand up to pressure from the mining lobby, which acts against the national interest on climate change, the Murdoch 9 news media duopoly, which acts against the national interest on multiple issues, notably reconciliation with First Nations and war, and the US hegemony, which places its national interests above all others 
no matter the denial of the sovereign rights of other countries. In summary, instead of languishing in an electoral system which works by allowing the political parties to divide us, the collaborative development of terms of trust will give us a truly democratic system which helps us better exercise good judgment to divide them into those who will best support our agenda and those who will not. And we can do this efficiently. We can rank the candidates using a yardstick that is meaningful for us as a nation. We can assess the level of commitment of each candidate and party to our preferred plans and we can gain the added advantage of being able to assess their commitment and credentials to uphold our values and human rights. Thanks for listening. If listeners want to read all four parts of this essay, the full transcript is available on the ACFP website at www.austcfp.com.au forward slash major hyphen essays. Links are in the description below. Links to all the sources and evidence for the claims made in this essay are also available in the transcript. My name's Bronwyn Kelly, and this has been the Australia Together podcast, brought to you by Australian Community Futures Planning. To become involved in planning and building a better future for Australia, subscribe to ACFP at www.austcfp.com.au. Everyone is welcome to participate.